Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And unfortunately, I didn't get the opportunity to follow up on Friday with further events on the Gaza Strip like I wanted to. But today, that is pretty much all we are going to be talking about because the world continues to hold its breath and remain fixated. I mean, a couple smaller things that have happened that we're going to talk about today as well. So let's jump right into it here, and we're going to start talking about things happening on the Gaza Strip. And I want to take some time and focus on a couple of things that uh, may not have been quite so focused on in some other people's reporting. The thing about uh, the conflicts between Israel and Palestine is that it has the tendency to really inflame infighting on both sides of the political spectrum. So there has definitely been a lot of people giving some really not great takes and not great opinions on what is happening right now in Gaza. And that is both on the left and right. We'll talk a little bit about that. And of course, we'll talk about what has been happening since we last convened. So I, like many of you over the last couple days, have really been feeling like I'm sitting here waiting for the other shoe to drop. I have this kind of pit in my stomach that over the next 48 to 72 hours, something really awful is going to happen. And we're going to see something terrible ensue and maybe the kind of loss of life that we have not seen in most of our lifetimes. Well, that feeling certainly hasn't gone away for me. We thankfully haven't seen anything quite to the extent that I was worried about. So a brief summary as to what has happened since our last episode. One of the largest things that has happened is that Israel has given an order to everyone in northern Gaza effectively to evacuate south. Initially, they gave them about 24 hours to evacuate. This was now probably 72 hours ago as of recording, and still we haven't seen anything. Fortunately, it looks like that within that 24 hours, most people were expecting Israel to launch some sort of ground offensive. That hasn't happened. It looks like that Israel has given people more time to flee south. So just for you guys to have a quick reference point, we'll just do a quick outline of the Gaza Strip. You can even see demarcated on satellite and space imagery where exactly the borders of the Gaza Strip are. So effectively, Israel has said that anyone to the north of this line has to flee south. And this is effectively 1.1 million people. So a huge population, which was given a first 24 hours to evacuate. Again, it looks like, thankfully, they are going to have more time before Israel moves in. I'm not sure if things in the IDF have been rethought. Like, they think maybe we, we should give these people more time to evacuate. Or, you know, this whole um, evacuation order within 24 hours was maybe something to throw off Hamas. Who knows exactly why they gave the order for 24 hours then and then did nothing once that uh, initial deadline expired. My thinking is that they realized that they were getting an extreme amount of backlash and it's an effective logistical impossibility to evacuate 1.1 million people in the span of 24 hours. So I think people came to their senses on that one. At the time of recording, the estimates I've seen floating around as to the number of people who have left this northern part of Gaza is about 600,000. So about half of the total population has now left. But when it comes to Gaza, we're talking about a tiny confined space. This isn't a huge country in which people have a lot of places that they can relocate to. 
We're going to talk about this more. There's a lot of misconceptions about the Gaza border, particularly with Egypt. People think the border between Egypt and Gaza is very porous. It is not. There is only one official crossing. And again, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. The point here being is that these 1.1 million people don't really have a, a lot of places to go to. The southern areas that they could flee to are already very overpopulated, as well as Israel has cut off the food, water, fuel, and power, although it looks like that Biden was able to negotiate some sort of deal to get the water turned back on. Hooray, people have water. Obviously a great thing that people are getting water, but it's not anywhere near what people need. And uh, also internet ha as well has been cut off. So you're talking about a bunch of people who are fleeing from one place that has no fuel, water, and power to another place that has no fuel, water, and power. And on top of that, you have uh, a lot of people who are injured, who may have family members who are injured, who cannot, uh, who cannot flee because they're effectively disabled and do not have the capacity to flee. Of course, you have people in disability shelters, you have people in hospitals who can move. And there's been a lot of question of what exactly happens to a hospital when the power and water and fuel is disconnected. And obviously that's a humanitarian catastrophe. I'm not sure about the hospitals in Gaza. Hopefully it's the same as it is here in North America. But as you guys may know that hospitals here in North America are required to have a backup generator. And that backup generator is usually fueled by either gas or diesel. So in the event of some sort of colossal power outage, the hospital will still be able to have power. Regulations over here in North America dictate that hospitals are supposed to have three days of fuel on hand in the case of some sort of catastrophic power failure. Let's just say we are well past those three days of catastrophic power failure in Gaza. So at this point, I have to assume that their hospitals are running on backup generators if they have them, which are requiring some sort of fuel or diesel to keep operating. Needless to say, a lot of fuel going into Gaza is going to probably have to be reserved for keeping the hospitals running. And right now, what we're all doing is waiting to see what is going to happen with the siege. We have Israel reportedly calling up 360 thousand reservists and most of these are being deployed to the south of the country around gaza it seems pretty obvious that israel is planning some sort of ground incursion into particularly the, the northern part of gaza and i like many people here watching the situation are just waiting for something to happen so until that time we really don't know how this situation is going to pan out that is my very brief Cliff Notes updates as to what is happening. But there are a couple more things that I really want to talk about in regards to this issue that a lot of people aren't talking about. First off, we're going to go through two big points that people don't really talk about that I want to talk about. First off is how awful Egypt has been in this whole situation. We're going to talk a lot about the Egypt-Gaza border because... That is one of the areas that I've seen the most amount of disinformation in regards to this whole topic online. And two, just how pissed off the Israeli people are at Benjamin Netanyahu and his government. And it's looking more and more likely that his political career is not going to be able to survive much longer. Given the feelings of the Israeli people right now, 
So I want to talk about those two things. Then I want to spend some time trying to put ourselves in the shoes of various people in regards to this conflict and try and think about it from their perspectives and try and reason out what their objectives and goals might be. Well, I guess thought experiments. Uh, and then I want to end off by talking a little bit about how this issue in particular is driving so much infighting in both the left and right and uh, some of the really awful takes that people have had. The thing is, I don't think that it is that difficult to come up with the quote-unquote correct takes about this situation if you actually understand the historical context. The issue is that the historical context is so vast and deep that it takes a considerable amount of time to familiarize yourself with it. So to start off our journey, let's have a look here at the Gaza-Egypt border. And as you can see, Rafa is where the primary border crossing is in the region. So let's zoom in here a little bit. And we can kind of see here from our satellite imagery that there is quite a, a demarcation line. And I wish I could give you a better look at it. As I was trying to, as I was doing research for the show, I wanted to get a better look at what exactly this border looked like. And there is absolutely no street view anywhere near this area for us. So we can't really get a good look, at least from Google Maps here. What's, what's over here? Whoa. So we got lots of great crap here. You understand what I mean? We can't really get a good look at this border through uh, Google Maps. Through Google Images, we can get a little bit of a better uh, look at what it looks like. Um, we can see various shots from media organizations of what this border looks like. Again, well defended. This is a border that has barbed wire, walls, fortifications, guard posts, anything you can imagine. But the fact of the matter is it didn't actually used to always be like this. In fact, uh, the border used to be much more open up until around, um, I believe, Egypt started their first border wall in 2009. And since then, it has only been uh, reinforced and reinforced. It used to just be like a steel fence, and now it has concrete, and now it has barriers. They go 30 feet underground, and this is to try and cut off any weapon smuggling tunnels as this is a huge issue, is weapons smuggling into Gaza. And the way they get these weapons into Gaza is through uh, various tunnels. There's a whole smuggling tunnel operation network. Regardless, though, Egypt tried to do what it could to shut down on this smuggling network and really crack down on this Egypt-Gaza border. And pretty much all that it has done is just made it harder for regular people to leave the region. Yeah. So in general, not just right now, in general, Egypt has been slowly but surely cracking down on this border to the point where we are now, like I said, where there is only one border crossing right here at Rafa, the Rafa border crossing out of, there's only one entrance between Gaza and Egypt. And right now, this entrance is closed. <laughs> as soon as Israel started locking down Gaza, Egypt made the first steps to close off this border. In fact, according to some reports, they have gone as far to put concrete barricades to block it. The, the United States and the United Nations and other partners in the region have been trying to negotiate an opening for this border. They've gotten it to open every so often, like sometimes they'll get it to open five hours a day, although I think they've got it up to nine hours right now. 
Regardless, though, this is not enough to alleviate the growing humanitarian crisis that we are seeing brewing in Gaza. My point here being is that Egypt needs to be doing more on this issue. Outside of those directly involved in the conflict, they're in the best position to offer any type of humanitarian aid and shelter to the people of Gaza. And at the bare minimum, that border crossing has to be safe and open all of the time. Not just five hours a day, not just nine hours a day, all of the time. Because you have to think about it, right? This is still a border crossing. This is not just everybody gets waved through, right? People still need to present their documents. They need to be processed by border agents. They need to present what they're taking and clear customs and all that crap, right? This isn't just off you go type thing. Obviously, everybody that gets cleared through this border crossing, it's going to take time anyway. And when you're limiting that time to such a small window, you're going to get a tiny, the barest trickle of people through. And there have also been reports of Israeli airstrikes near the region of the Rafah border crossing, which would be a humanitarian catastrophe. And that's certainly plausible considering that Israel has conducted numerous airstrikes since October 7th all throughout the Gaza Strip. One thing, though, I do want people to consider is that Hamas continues to launch rockets. But one thing that people don't realize is that a lot of the times those rockets are just so poorly calibrated that they will fall back into the Gaza Strip a lot of the times completely missing their target and sometimes inflicting damage on themselves. So misfired rockets are always a possibility here, which continues to muddy the already very muddied waters of this conflict. Regardless, though, I just really wanted to say, fuck you, Egypt. You should be pulling your weight a little bit more in this crisis right now. You are in probably the best position to do something, whether that is aid, whether that's negotiating some sort of peace deal or ceasefire. Egypt is in the best place right now to do something, and... They are not doing it. So with that out of the way, let's move to the second thing that I want to talk about. Just to show you what I mean, back in 2021, when the, the last real conflict between Israel and Gaza flared up in that period, uh, in that period, approximately 680 Hamas rockets misfired and landed on targets within Gaza. But on to uh, something I want to talk about here, because I am seeing something that I thought was quite shocking that, well, let's just say it goes against my uh, political instincts because coming out of this uh, horrific attack on the 7th, I believed that there would be a rally around the flag effect for Benjamin Netanyahu, a la the same effect that George W. Bush had after 9-11, where everybody comes together and says, hurrah, we're going to get re revenge against the terrorists who have hurt us, here you go, here's all the power in the world, go get those bad guys. But the fact of the matter, this appears not to be happening for Benjamin Netanyahu, which is to me quite fascinating. And I think there's a couple of reasons as to why this is happening. What we are seeing coming out of Israel right now is, of course, a burning anger and desire for revenge against Hamas, against the people who targeted their friends and their families and their loved ones but there is also a righteous anger against the government which allowed that attack to happen there is certainly a large very large section of the israeli populace 
that is holding Benjamin Netanyahu's government directly responsible uh, for what happened on October 7th. So this is a poll taken from October 12th. So this is five days old, though I doubt this sentiment would have changed much. According to this poll right now, 56% of Israelis want Benjamin Netanyahu to resign right now. Right now, where 92% believe the government should be held accountable for the attack. It's conceivable that amount of people who want Benjamin Netanyahu to go is significantly higher than that 56% who want him to go right now. It's just that there's probably people who maybe want him to go a little bit later, maybe not necessarily right now. And can you imagine what a disaster it would have been for Bush if right after 9-11, 56% of the population had felt that he should have resigned right there and then? But when I was presented with this information, I was started to reflect why this might be, why there might be a, a difference between what happened on 9-11 and George Bush and what happened on October 7th for Benjamin Netanyahu. And there's a couple of factors that I think are definitely playing into the feeling of the Israeli population right here. One is that George W. Bush was just starting his term as president, right? He was completely unknown at the time. He hadn't had the opportunity to really do or say or exist in any real fashion as the president. This was really his first exposure in a presidential way to the American population. And because he was so new and this was so shocking, I think a lot of people were a lot more willing to give Bush the benefit of the doubt, whereas Benjamin Netanyahu is certainly old news at this point. He's been around Israeli politics longer than most of us watching have probably been alive. But yeah, the guy is certainly a known quantity and has made plenty of mistakes in the past. And because of that, people are certainly less willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And the secondary thing is that the people of Israel make a lot more sacrifices in the name of security than we do over here in North America. They give up a lot more of their freedoms to try and maintain a safe and secure state for their people. And a guy like Benjamin Netanyahu has really hung his political career on, I'm the safety guy, I'm the security guy, I'm the one who's going to make sure that uh, you guys are kept safe. You don't have to worry about your house being raided in the middle of the night or rockets falling on you or anything like that. I'm the guy who's going to keep you safe from all of that crap. And then to hang your hat on that uh, political prospect and then to go out and demand a lot of sacrifices from the Israeli people just to have a horrific attack happen against them anyway, let's just say it doesn't look very good for your political prospects if the one thing that you have been saying that you're going to do, you haven't really been able to do. I also think that when it came to 9-11, there was definitely a huge novelty factor around the way the attack took place. There still hasn't really been anything like it. A, a bunch of terrorists hijacking a plane and then flying it into a building and uh, crashing and, and taking down that building. That's an extremely shocking event. And like I said, nothing like that has happened since. Whereas what happened on October 7th, while definitely unexpected and extraordinarily shocking, still took place predominantly with conventional military weapons. And I think because of that, it, it lacks that real incredible shock impact that something like 9-11 had it for us at the time. 
And out of everything that has happened since this attack took place, this is the thing that is giving me the greatest amount of hope, which is that the Israeli people are turning against Benjamin Netanyahu and that they are not going to hopefully let him take control of the government and really overstep and really consolidate sort of authoritarian power and control. Doesn't look like the Israeli people are too keen on that. You see a lot of the victims of these attacks who get interviewed in the media, and one of the things a lot of them do is squarely point the finger at Netanyahu. There's been a couple of famous examples, actually, where the newscaster, because it's like a pro-Netanyahu channel, will, like, will shut off the interview because the, the interviewee is really going hard on Netanyahu. So I am very happy to see this, to be honest. And if Benjamin Netanyahu's political career dies, and hopefully, of course, we get someone who's more moderate, of course, there are plenty of people who are surprisingly less moderate than him in Israeli politics. But if his political career dies, we end up actually getting a more uh, moderate Israeli prime minister out of this. It'll be one of the silver linings to have come out of this whole catastrophe. So I said I only had two pretty brief kind of bullet points that I wanted to talk about before we moved on. But there's actually three bonus bullet points that I want to move into that I want to sneak in here. And this was another way in which my political instincts were wrong. One of the things that I've had the opportunity to do since October 7th and this whole Israeli-Hamas war has kicked off and, and people have started paying attention to it and talking about it is I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people in the real world about this, people who aren't necessarily politically inclined. And it's given me a, a great perspective on how people see what's going on. <laughs> Let's just say people are confused. I think people, a lot of people have no idea what to think. But I was talking to someone, a friend of mine who does know what's going on. And his proposition was that coming out of this attack, that a lot of countries that were looking towards Israel as a potential security guarantor or normalized relations are going to actually turn away from Israel and now maybe turn towards Iran, even if they have strong geopolitical rivalries. And I thought that was unlikely. I thought that countries like Saudi Arabia would never team up with Iran. They would never look towards Iran, even after the wake of something like this, even after the wake of what happened on October 7th, that Saudi Arabia was still probably going to stay close to Israel. It seems like this is not going to happen, actually. This is from a couple of days ago. Saudi Arabia has decided to pause a discussion on possible normalization with Israel, and it has informed U.S. officials of its decision, a source familiar uh, to discussions, told uh, a, fresh, a French press agency. And this is a huge deal because a ton of the United States Middle East security policy has been around getting Saudi Arabia to side with Israel in a larger geopolitical context. And if Saudi Arabia is pulling away from that is going to be a serious threat for Israel. And it's probably one of those things that's going to draw the United States back into the region. We're already seeing the United States has deployed, I believe, two aircrafts, two aircrafts. <laughs> yep, just two planes, no, two aircraft carriers into the region already with, I'm assuming, more troops and personnel to come in the next coming days. But if Saudi Arabia pulls towards Iran, that would be a real geopolitical disaster for the United States because it would undo 20 plus years of United States foreign policy in the region. 
And with this little tidbit of information, with this small little side comment from Saudi Arabia, do you know what this means effectively, everybody? It means that the Abraham Accords are dead. And as you guys may remember from the last episode, I'm not a huge fan of the Abraham Accords. In fact, I found a new way to trigger conservatives because I posted a short of me trashing the Abraham Accords because they didn't involve Palestine in the negotiations and a whole bunch of Trump people lost their minds. They freaked the fuck out. They descended on the channel like a plague of locusts. So whatever you do, guys, don't criticize their shitty accords. They will take it extremely personally. I feel like there was someone who was saying this whole time that not involving Palestine in the Abraham Accords would come back to blow the whole thing up. I feel like somebody was saying that. And I feel like that somebody, they could do a victory lap. So that's what they're going to do. I'll show you why this blows up the Abraham Accords completely and utterly. If you guys know which countries are actually involved in the Abraham Accords, most of them are fairly small potatoes in reference to Israel. So outside of Israel, there were four countries involved in the Abraham Accords, and we'll mark them on the map. They were Morocco, they're Sudan, they're the United Arab Emirates, and they're uh, Bahrain, which is this little island here next to Qatar. None of these countries ever really were a threat to Israel, didn't really have a huge beef with them to begin with, except maybe the United Arab Emirates. But the thing is, predominantly, none of these countries are a threat to Israel. But what the Abraham Accords was trying to do, effectively, was normalize and open the door for one country to come on in. And if that country comes into the Abraham Accords, then you have uh, a real deal. You have a real coalition of partners here. And if we look at the map for one second, it's very easy to see what that country is that they were aiming for. It's, of course, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's, the, it's the reason why it's in the middle of most of the Abraham Accord partners um, throughout the past sort of five to ten years. Uh, Saudi and Israeli relations have been, over time, gradually warming up to the point where it looked like there was going to be a real normalization of relations between the two countries, which would have been extraordinarily huge. Saudi Arabia is arguably the most powerful Islamic country in the world right now, having the most powerful Islamic country in the world recognize Israel and been on the side of Israel would have been a huge diplomatic boon. And uh, you might be wondering why Morocco is there. The reason why Morocco joined the Abraham Accords is to give the middle finger to Algeria. 95% of Morocco's foreign policy is decided on the basis, does this give the middle finger to Algeria? But with Saudi Arabia now, again, deciding that it's no longer going to pursue normalization relations with Israel, the Abraham Accords are not even worth the paper that they're printed on anymore. Because the whole point of them was to get the ball rolling, to get more and more uh, Arabic countries to recognize Israel. You get the ball rolling with uh, the more friendly partners and some of the smaller players, and it becomes easier to get the larger ones in the door. So now for this part of the show, I want to do some thought experiments and I want to put ourselves in the roles of a bunch of different players in this conflict 
and see where things shake out. It's not really to go to a certain point. In some of these instances, it's more just to think about necessarily someone's goals and motivations and that sort of thing. So the first position I want to think about now and put ourselves in is let's try and put ourselves in the position of someone who has to command this operation in Gaza. If we're an IDF general and we are given the goal and task of the Israeli government of removing Hamas from the Gaza Strip and eliminating their ability to govern in the area, how are we going to do this? What options do we have available? What is the best thing for us to do? Because one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of, particularly coming from a lot of left-wing people in regards to this, when they're talking about Gaza, and we're going to get into this a little bit later in the show, but one of the things that has been bothering me about the left-wing response to what has happened on October 7th is that Israel doesn't really have the right to respond or to do anything. I think it's ridiculous. Again, if we put ourselves in the shoes, if I try and put myself in the shoes of a regular average Israeli citizen, I'm going to want my government, I'm going to want my military to do something. Do I want my military to do something that involves the killing of a million people, that involves starving innocent children? No, I do not want my government to do that, but I do want them to do something to hold responsible the people who attacked us. And I think assuming that the Israeli government isn't going to do something or can't do something or doesn't have the right to do something, that's just silly talk. So that's putting that aside for now. If I'm in the position of the commander of the operation that's probably going to happen, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Well, one of the things, the first thing I, I want to be cognizant of is that this whole thing may very well be a trap. Uh, many people have said it. We've probably seen the Admiral Akbar memes. It makes complete and total sense that Hamas would try and lay some sort of trap in Gaza for the IDF. But that would be the first thing I would want to be cognizant of is that going into any kind of operation, what does Hamas have up their sleeve? What kind of tricks are they going to be planning? What kind of tactics are they going to be planning? We need to be doing our best to gain as much information before we go in to ensure that we're not walking into some kind of trap. So that's consideration number one. And then my second consideration would be is how do I drive a large as wedge in between the people of Gaza and Hamas as I possibly can. Because Israel is in a very difficult position right now. And I very much so sympathize with the position that their government is in and the extremely difficult tightrope that they have to walk right now. Because they have to walk the tightrope, of course, holding those who are responsible accountable but not going so far that they end up provoking not just a backlash from the people in Gaza, but from people outside, from, but from people all over the world, and particularly people in the region. And that is absolutely not an easy task to do. That is not an easy line to walk. That is an, not an easy balance to maintain. And I am extremely sympathetic of that. Knowing that if in this operation I go too far, and I end up hurting and causing way more collateral damage 
I could provoke something that is far worse and some sort of greater conflict. So again, I need to be cognizant of that. And for me, my thinking would be the best way that I can ensure success would be to, again, find a way to drive that wedge in between Hamas and the people of Gaza. I'm not sure what the best way to do that is. Maybe you can offer Israeli citizenship to certain people who do certain things or offer some sort of incentive for the people of Gaza to turn over Hamas or something like that, right? One of the things that I do think Israel definitely needs to think about doing a lot more is using the carrot end of the equation. They got the stick end definitely down, but there are some carrots which could be used here to gain some real magnificent results, in my opinion. Anyway, the whole point of this is to try and get people to think about the difficult bounce of factors that you need to consider when you're going to undergo what looks like is going to happen, which is some sort of ground operation into northern Gaza. Personally, we can argue whether or not Israel has the right to do this all day long. The fact of the matter is that they're going to do it. That That is effectively what is going to happen. And it needs to be done in a way that uses a scalpel, right? This is a scalpel operation. But the, what I see Israel doing is definitely not using a scalpel. Seems like they are taking a club to this operation. And yeah, that really worries me. But now I want to flip the script here. I want to flip the script and try and think, what if I am a Hamas leader? What if I am in Gaza? I've just conducted this attack. What is my end goal? What the hell am I trying to achieve here? And if I put myself in their position, uh, one of the things that immediately becomes clear to me is that I'm not going to defeat my enemy without outside help. I simply do not have the means at my disposal to defeat Israel. I am going to need to gain other people to help me in my fight. How can I gain other people to help me in my fight? Well, obviously there are people broadly sympathetic to my cause all across the Muslim world. Perhaps what we could do is engineer some sort of horrific attack, which will then cause Israel to crack down on Gaza in potentially an equally hard or even harder manner. And through that crisis, which we have effectively generated ourselves because we were the catalyst in starting it, through this crisis, we can bring attention onto what's happening in Gaza. And if Israel goes hard enough, we can even provoke potential backlash from not just the Muslim world, but all around the Muslim world. But if we can even get some of our allies in the Muslim world to take up arms on our behalf. So that would be my broad goal as a Hamas leader. That would be what I've been tr trying to do effectively right now is trying to draw other people into this conflict that we are starting. And the best way to do that is to ensure as ruthless as a response that Israel will give. And the way to ensure that is by being as brutal and as we can be ourselves. So obviously you can see how this whole kind of cycle of violence is just getting worse and worse and worse. And then of course, phase two, after my plan, once we provoke a response from Israel, we get them to come into Gaza. And here in Gaza, we have some sort of treat waiting for them. I'm not sure what could be waiting for them, 
but I think we all kind of know and understand that Hamas probably has something planned. They probably thought through what would happen as a result of them carrying out this attack. They probably thought that it would in in an Israeli ground offensive, and they have probably, as a result, thought through something that they will have waiting for them in response. And what I think, whatever that could be, they're going to try and use it to trigger an even worse response from Israel, to try and trigger even greater crackdown from Israel. So whatever it is that they have planned, that is what I think that their ultimate goal is going to try and be. The point here is to just try and get you guys to think about what different kind of goals and perspectives each side might have and to see what kind of ridiculous balancing acts that we're all playing here right now. But the worst of all, when I put my myself in the shoes of somebody in this situation, the worst of all, I think, the worst position of all to be in would be a 15-year-old child in Gaza. Because as some of you may know, the median age in Gaza is extremely young. It's one of the youngest places on the planet. The median, median age is, I believe, 17. It's either 15 or 17. Regardless, though, extremely young. And the last time that there was any type of election or the people had an opportunity to exert some sort of political power on the system was back in 2007, which if you are a 15-year-old Palestinian child in 2007, you would be two years old. You didn't exactly have the opportunity to exert any political power over the system or change who might be in charge of it. Yet now you are effectively reaping the results of this horrific leadership. So it doesn't really matter which position you put yourself in. It's really not hard to see why there's so much pain and why there's so much suffering and why this conflict has dragged on for so long. And one thing I want to keep in perspective too is just how much this area has changed hands in human history. I was trying to explain to a friend of mine, because again, I, a lot of people know uh, about me and my personal life that I really like politics. I'm pretty in the know in regards to what's happening in the world. So people have been coming and asking me, what the hell is going on in Gaza? What can you give me some of the details about this conflict? I talked to a friend of mine and I was trying to explain to her, there are so many different layers here, right? There's religious considerations, there's ethnic considerations. And on top of that, there's cultural considerations. And all of these go back. If you go back far enough, they go back to the dawn of human civilization. But just to illustrate how many times this area has changed historical ownership over the years, I just want to do a little quick exercise here, which is that I'm going to mention some people from different time periods, generally someone associated with a, a time period and then I'm going to tell you who is the historical owner of uh, modern-day Israel at that time. All right, so first off, we'll start off with our boy Socrates. This is, of course, we're talking in around the 400 B.C. E era. Well, you can't even see the end, but you understand. But 400 B.C.E., who owned this area during the time of Socrates? Well, if you guys know your history, it is the Persians. And this is the Achaenid Persians. If you guys, of course, seen 300, those Persians, right? Those Persians that came in and invaded Greece. They were the ones uh, that owned Israel at that time. 
now we're going to move 400 years into the future. It's going to be zero, zero AD. I guess I could have put Jesus here too, but this is the time of Cleopatra. And during the time of Cleopatra, who owned this area? You all guys know as the Romans or the Womans, as they would say at the time. I'm not Jewish, I'm a Roman. A woman? No, no, Roman. Regardless, though, during the time of Cleopatra, during the time of Mark Antony, during the time of Caesar, and of course, Augustus Caesar, uh, this area was owned by the Roman Empire. And that was until, we're going to fast forward a little bit here. So now we're going to go fast forward 100 years to the time of William the Conqueror, just the 1066 AD. Now that we're well past the Roman era, you know, the Roman Empire has well collapsed. Wait, your biggest stickers here of this. In fact, we're, we're well past now, even the era where the Eastern Roman Empire used to own this area, the, uh, the Byzantine Empire, as it is commonly known. Uh, they no longer even own this area. Who does now in the time of William the Conqueror? During this time, you have the Abbasid Caliphate ruling the area, which is a large Islamic empire, which spread from Saudi Arabia all the way to uh, Morocco. It was a huge span of territory, and they were the ones who eventually wrestled control of this area away from the Eastern Roman Empire. Then later on, <laughs> during the Crusades, you would have the Crusaders come in, and they would briefly retake this area and found a few crusader kingdoms. And then, of course, that would collapse. And now we'll come to our last figure, because if uh, this will bring us up basically to where we uh, talked about the history of Israel from the last episode. So if you recall from the last episode, you'll probably know who owned this area during the time of Napoleon. So that's during the 1800s. Yeah, again, if you watched the last episode, you will know that it was the Ottoman Empire who ruled this area, who ruled it until the end of World War I, where they lost to the British, and then at the end of World War II, the British then established what we know as the State of Israel there. So the point here is to remind you guys that over the course of human history, there has been an extremely high number of people who have controlled this area, in fact, you, if you were paying attention, you'll notice that we didn't even mention the ancient Jewish kingdoms that originated from this area because I was trying to think, what is the earliest historical figure that most people probably know? And that's, I think that's Socrates. Maybe I guess you could go to maybe King Tut or something like that. But he actually wasn't a very important Egyptian pharaoh to begin with. Regardless, that's not important. My, my point here being is that I was trying to come up with the earliest example of a person that people would commonly be able to know. And Socrates was who I came up with. Before you even get to the ancient kingdom of Israel, you have to go back into a period of history which is very far gone in most people's memory. So the roots here in this region go extremely deep. And now with that, I want to actually talk about a couple of terrible takes that uh, I have seen crop up over the last couple days. And I guess you could suppose you would, you could say a week uh, over the last week or so. These are terrible takes, which span the political spectrum. Nothing quite 
invokes political infighting on both the left and right as the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. But on the left-wing side, a lot of what you will see is people who are basically totally apologistic of Hamas and everything that they have done, and they consider it to be legitimate responses to the way that the Israeli government have treated them. There's one statement that was posted on my Discord that particularly grinded my gears. This was a statement from uh, the People's Socialist and Liberation Party, an American outfit, I believe. In any case, I have pulled it up right here. I'm just going to move myself over here. I'm not going to read it in full, but we'll just read the bullet points here. Resistance to an apartheid and fascist group oppression was labeled as terrorism by U.S. politicians when the African National Congress took up arms against the racist apartheid in South Africa. The same false terrorism label is being applied to the Palestinian people. The PSL says resistance to apartheid and fascist type oppression is not a crime, is the inevitable outcome for all people who demand self-determination rather than living with the boot and heel of oppression on their necks. People of the United States are going into the streets right now to say free Palestine, cut all aid to the apartheid regime, and free all Palestinian political prisoners. Cutting to the chase here, the corporate media and politicians want the public to believe that Israel is simply defending itself from terrorism. This is a lie. The actions of the resistance over the course of the last day is a morally and legally legitimate response to occupation. It was brought about by the escalating oppression of Israel on numerous fronts. I could not disagree with that highlighted segment anymore where it says the actions of the resistance over the last day is a morally and legally justifiable response to occupation. Of course, they are talking about the attacks that Hamas undertook, which include gunning down civilians, which include killing children, which included raping women, which included kidnapping people. To, to me, call me crazy, but I don't believe that any of those are legitimate actions to what Israel has done over the course of its occupation. I do believe that Israel 100% acted not in accordance with international law on numerous times, but this does not justify the murdering of families in front of their loved ones. It just doesn't. I know, hot take, right? But apparently it is. So unfortunately, this is a very common theme amongst a lot of left-wing organizations in response to uh, what has happened. It just frustrates me, right? It frustrates me to, to no end because it makes us look like a bunch of morons. And, and unfortunately, I have to call it out and I have to push back against it because if I don't, people will think that I am in line with this type of thinking. And even people who are generally like really good about these kind of issues. I was watching uh, Vosh's video about when Israel gave that evacuation order for that 1.1 million civilians. Most of what he's talking about, I was on board. It was fine. I didn't really have any uh, thing that I would disagree with until at one point someone in the stream asked him, well, what should Israel do? What can Israel do? And Vosh says something like, well, Israel needs to completely destroy the border wall and put a bunch of money into Gaza and demobilize the troops and, and so on and so forth. And I certainly think that at some point, Israel is going to need to pay some sort of reparations to the people of Gaza. But to, to act like, A, that Israel has no right to do something, to do some sort of response, and B, 
like at this time, right now, right after an attack, that people are going to be like, you know what, let's just put aside what's happened and we'll put aside our differences and come together in Kumbaya. Unfortunately, I just don't think that is going to happen. I don't think that's a realistic outlook to where people are emotionally. And again, when I put myself in the shoes of as uh, just an everyday average Israeli citizen, I feel like I would want my government to do something. I would want my government to hold those who attacked us accountable. And again, that's what it seems like most Israeli people want, but they also want to hold the government itself to account as well because they see them as a significant contributor to the reason why they were attacked on October 7th. Of course, this doesn't give Israel the right to do a lot of what it's doing. In fact, I don't think it has the right to cut off power and water to Gaza. That is the controversial take for a lot of people on the right, right? If you're a person on the right and says, you know what, I think it's probably bad that Israel's cutting off power and water to Gaza. That's one of those things that will get right-wing people to freak out at you and yell at you and tell you that you're a horrible human being. And speaking of which, let's go to some of those horrible right-wing takes because <laughs> there's definitely been more than a few of those. So let's, wanna, let's go to one of the most interesting examples of right-wing infighting that we've seen. This one's definitely been making the rounds. This is Ben Shapiro commenting on, again, this is old now. This is maybe a week old. Yeah, just about a week old now. Basically commenting on how Israel is striking various civilian points in Gaza. And there are various people. Here we have a UN Special Reporter for Human Rights saying we're horrified what's happening and we call for a truce. And then Benny Boy says, and they can fuck right off. And this is definitely the, again, the horrific take when it comes from the right, which is lumping in Palestinian children with Hamas and effectively arguing that they bear some sort of responsibility for the attack that took place on October 7th. And because of that, we are therefore justified in using whichever type of tools that we have on our toolbox against them. And of course, this kind of leads you down to a very series of dark and disturbing paths. And before I get into the response here, and I'm, I'll tell you guys something about, and this is not within American legal code, as far as I know, this is something that is in Canadian legal code. And effectively here, you have a responsibility that once you are in control of a situation, to effectively stop hurting that person, to stop attacking or fighting once you have control of the situation. And for an untrained person, right, that's probably not going to matter because what's going to happen is that let's say you get attacked on the street, you're just a regular average untrained person, you get attacked on the street and a desperate fight ensues and you end up killing the person who attacked you. The court is going to say you were absolutely justified in that self-defense. You are not a person who has any kind of fight training. This for you is a life or death fight. Therefore, you are justified in using the amount of force that you did. But now let's say instead of being an or a normal, regular person, you are a extremely trained martial artist, right? You are just a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert. You know exactly what you're doing. You know, all the techniques, all the takedowns, you train all the time. 
and you get attacked on the street and you just completely obliterate the person who is mugging you. You completely destroy them and annihilate them. In that circumstance, if the court is able to find out and establish that you were, in fact, a martial arts expert, they're going to say, well, you are a trained person. You are trained in the art of physical combat, and therefore you should have more control. You should have more restraint. And because you ended up killing this person, you bear some sort of responsibility for their death because you didn't need to go as far as you did. And I think that this is a very interesting concept. And most of the time I agree with this principle in thinking, but there are certainly some times uh, that I don't. But that being said, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, this is the type of thinking that I have, that in this kind of circumstance, Israel is the martial arts expert. is trained completely in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, can take on anybody, right? It's incumbent on them to have more restraint and more control because they have that training and they have that access to force that the other side doesn't have. Regardless, interesting food for thought. And this reminded me of that because of Andrew Tate's response. You guys know my thoughts on this guy. Not a fan. Big time, not a fan. But unfortunately, in this one, in this fight, I got to give it to him. I think he's right in this one where he says, Mr. Tough Guy, let me assure you as someone who has done his own fighting as opposed to excitedly encouraging others to do it for him while sitting in his comfy chair, Peace is always worth a conversation. Honestly, I was not expecting this kind of mentality from Andrew Tate. This is a very, like, this is almost like a liberal, right, uh, egalitarian type of mentality coming from the guy. And he's absolutely right that it's not going to be Benny Boy who's doing the fighting. And if we can save somebody's life, it's worth having that conversation. It's worth trying to de-escalate. Again, very surprised that it's Andrew Tate as the one who is advocating for de-escalation, but we live in strange times. All right, so let's just wrap it up here with Ben's response. He says back, let me assure you as someone who has not pimped out women and bragged about it, that morality requires that those who rape women and kidnap children must be eradicated, not negotiated with. And to be honest, it, this is not a very good response from Ben Shapiro. He's right about him being a sex trafficker, but... Just because he is a terrible human being, and in my opinion, very obviously a convict and a criminal, that doesn't mean he's not right about this issue. And particularly when uh, you're using words like eradication, just not a good look. I, I, I don't think using the word eradication in reference to people, generally not a good thing. You know, I love to, to pontificate and, and discuss ethical questions. I don't know how often ethical questions bring up the, the the question of eradication. Eradication and morality generally are put together. But to me, I think one of the things that really got under Ben's skin was this idea that he's not the one that's going to be doing the fighting, right? <laughs> Ben's never fought anybody in his life. He, of course, just gets to uh, sit online and stir shit up. Because, yeah, it's not going to be him that's going to die it's going to be young israeli men and women on the front lines that are going to die it's going to be young palestinian men and women and children most likely as well that are going to die in this ensuing conflict long story short 
everybody's attacking everybody. Civil war everywhere. Everywhere, everyone's at each other's throats. And it's looking like while we're all sitting here pointing fingers at one another. Now, I talked about how Russia didn't really have anything to gain from this, but now I've changed my mind on that front in regards to the one thing they do have to gain on this is now nobody is paying attention to Ukraine. Nobody is thinking about Ukraine. Everybody's looking at Israel and Hamas. One, one of my friends, she brought up a really interesting point when we were talking about this, and she mentioned that when it came to the Ukraine war, everybody was on Ukraine's side instantly. When it comes to what's happening in Israel, the Israeli-Hamas war, everybody's much more divided. It's definitely like a 50-50 uh, divide among the country of pro-Palestine, pro-Israel, quote-unquote, right? At least I like to think that I'm both pro-Palestine and pro-Israel simultaneously. Some people think that's not possible, but I like to believe this issue is cutting across hard all over the political spectrum and people are going a little bit crazy <laughs> they're going a little bit crazy and just take it easy everybody unless you're in israel unless you're in gaza unless you're in that region we don't need to be tearing each other up over it right this is we don't need to be escalating and spilling these kind of fights and conflicts all over the entire world actually move into a feel-good story although for once our feel-good story is a political story I want a big shout out to one of my polish fans buck juice because i promised him long ago that when poland had their election that i would cover it <laughs> and i would talk about it and it completely went unbeknownst to me and people mentioned that hey you remember poland i remember that polish election hey yeah it, it just happened so uh, let's talk about it because we do actually have some good news in that regard. Not great news, but some good news. So we have the final tally all done. And what the final tally is showing is that the opposition coalition of Polish parties has enough votes to turn over the ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, which is a very you know, hard right, populist, socially conservative party. And they've had a pretty firm control over Polish politics for the last uh, decade or so, a little bit less than that. And thankfully for all of us, they went down in flames. We have here, this is their, this is the actual Polish election website. And I don't know why I went here. <laughs> this is really not going to help me because I unfortunately do not read Polish. So let's go back to the political article. Perfect exactly what I was looking for. We have a head-to-head -head comparison of where these parties stand in relation to one another. The ruling party, the PSI party, which is abbreviated Polish for the Law and Justice Party, in 2019, they secured a pretty sizable 44%, just under 44% of the vote. This time, they lost almost 10% of the vote. And most of that was divvied up between some of the smaller parties here, mostly centrist parties. So the one below them, this is called the Civic Party, and they are a centrist moderate party, typical neoliberal, we have economic policies that exist type of party. And as you can see, they gained a substantial amount in this election. They gained about three points. Next, this red is the left. That's just what it stands for. This is the left coalition. They looks like got pretty clobbered. They lost almost four points. And then below them is another new coalition. This is a new coalition. They're called the Third Way. And they're another centrist coalition. 
they were a merger uh, between a couple of other parties from the last election, and it looks like they did extremely well. Okay, sorry, it says right underneath my head. The merger between the Polish 2050 and the Polish People's Party. So yeah, they came together and did very well on their first election, securing 14% of the vote. And then below them is a hard nationalist right-wing party. They're called the Confederation. I think that's what it stands for. And regardless, they did slightly better, 0.4% improvement. So what does all of this mean? Well, despite the fact that the ruling Law and Justice Party did gain the most amount of votes in this election, the left and the third way and the uh, civic coalition all have enough uh, seats combined to which they can dictate government policy. They could form an, a coalition if they were to ally amongst themselves, and there is nothing that the other right-wing parties could do to oust them. So while we don't know for sure if that's what's going to happen, that looks like what is going to be the most likely outcome given this election. So while this isn't like some kind of grand, overwhelming victory for left-wing politics, it is very nice to see Poland moderating at least a little bit in, in terms of its kind of social conservative direction and more economically populist turn. It's good to see the Polish people turning away from that a little bit and mainly back more towards, I guess you would assume to be conventional and traditional economic politics. While not my most ideal, it is certainly, I think, a better direction than where they were previously. So good on you, Poland, for at least blunting the right-wing trajectory in Eastern Europe at least a little bit. And I hope that your new government will be able to come together and secure a lot of prosperity for your nation in the coming future. And one of the great things about this election, too, is that the parties who form this coalition or look likely to form this coalition are all pro-Ukrainian parties, Poland being one of the most key and predominant players in aid to Ukraine. It looks like that is going to continue for at least another four years, depending on how long the war actually continues for. All right, and with that, I have gone way too long. We've done yet another ridiculously long episode. So I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been the Comrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.